Podcast 55, Review of Gaia's Garden, Chapter 6. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, so today we're going to talk about uh, Gaia's Garden, Chapter 6, Plants for Many Uses. But um, before we get into that, I, 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 want to, I want to hear praise for my new video. <laughs> <laughs> the Mullen video. It is I, awesome. I, I thought it was really good. I, I, and so, um, but I'm biased. I have... I have some videos out there about other um, species, other plants, and uh, normally the the ones about plants don't get a lot of views. And um, uh, I kind of think that it, what it is is that you have only one person talking about a plant, and there's some YouTube videos that kind of do that. And so I got this bee in my bonnet that what I wanted was is to have like ten different experts. And Toby Hammondway was one of the people in this video. And uh, and I and this one has ten different people uh, making comments about Mullen and from ten different. So I think it came together really good. Well, and it has a feature that's one of your favorites. You love humor and comedy, and this has comic relief. It, it has a little bit of of a of a variety that's you know a little atypical from most comedy, but I I don't know. I mean, I I did leave a little bit of my voice in it, which I usually for the videos I usually try to edit out my voice, but. <laughs> I was suggesting that Mullen uh, uh, evolved with human beings and right. um, puts, out, puts out toilet paper just at the point in time when human beings need to uh, drop off nutrients. <laughs> right, for the Mullen. Yes, that it's, it's a really information-packed um, video. There's a lot in there about the multiple, you know, as we're talking, it really fits well with this chapter of plants for many uses because mullen is a plant for many uses and and the video goes through a lot of those uses the thread out of permies talks about even more uses than the video true there's there's a bunch of points inside the video that i um i didn't i wasn't able to cover or because no one really quite said it Right. And so um, I tried to fill in some of that in the description with the video. And then, of course, you know, my memories, we talk about it a bit. But, you know, the, the, the most important thing being is that um, Mullen will go to, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's probably one of your primary healers of the earth. Um, and and wherever you have a, a pile of gravel or um, I, I mean I got a, I got a picture in there of it actually trying to heal asphalt. Yes. <laughs> Mother yeah. Nature says this asphalt is not okay, so Mother Nature has sent Mullen over there to fix it. <laughs> um, and, and, and you know, eventually that would make a difference. <laughs> you know? It will. It will. Mother Nature will reclaim that eventually. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, excellent video. Yes, Paul. So, um, and and then of course the it's the cowboy toilet paper, and it has um, three uh, um, 
primary medicinal factors in it, um, uh, most of which, two of which, are like things that are really easy for people to do at home. And uh, for a lot of for a lot of the medicinal herbs, you, when we talk about them, it's like it can be used for this, but in, but then usually for this, whatever this is, there's there's usually like one plant that is the best plant for this and and uh and mullen is is that for uh lung trouble as well as for earaches mullen is number one so um uh, i i thought that was really you know good and it's stuff you can do at home easy easy peasy um all right uh Toby Hemway chapter six um let's see uh last weekend you uh went and did other things i I went to go see toby <laughs> that's right that's right uh, I, I believe the point here is neener neener <laughs> <laughs> Toby is really cool and you and you've already put out uh, a video with toby uh when two yeah two videos yes uh the second one is the Mullen that we just talked about, but the first one was Toby talking about uh, natives, which was your right. And, made and that's you one, happy. Made you so. I, I a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from that so far has been like, what? <laughs> so I put out this video of Toby talking about na- how natives only is not necessarily a good thing. And always a powerful advocate of natives. Um, uh, people, I mean, I think one of the points is we talked about it in the podcast was the thing about um, uh, if you plant your yard and natives only, then um, you're going to need food. And that means that somebody else somewhere else is going to have to like, plant food to feed you and and so uh, but whereas if you grow your food from your yard then you know that's there's more wildlife that can exist out there um, which is an excellent point and he also made the point of native to win he, he went into Douglas furs um, uh, he used that, those as an example which I thought was excellent because I, I love to pick on Douglas fir trees while well, they are a magnificent and awesome tree they're allelopathic and so they tend to toxify other stuff and people don't realize that it's like why are things not growing under the Douglas fir what am I doing wrong <laughs> so um, but again it's it was a video that most people did not see the value of it they're kind of looking at it like I don't get it and, right. I, and I think that's because for me as I go about and I try and and teach stuff giving presentations and whatever else, uh, uh, I, I encounter these people that are native-only advocates, and they are passionate and often hostile. And um, I, they, they basically insist that everybody needs to do as they do, which is um, uh, plant natives only and, and go and, and rip out anything that's not native. And um, uh, Toby was telling me, and it wasn't, I don't believe it was in the video, I don't think it was in the video, how, uh, um, so offline, uh, he was telling me about how uh, the lobbyists for natives are like, Monsanto <laughs> and Dow and these big chemical companies because this is like the, an enormous part of their income is from these native-only advocates. Wow. Yeah. That's and, bizarre. But you think about it, it's totally true. It's like, okay, we're going to make this area 
native only. We've decided to take this mountainside and make it natives only. So how do we do that? Well, pulling everything is such a hassle. <laughs> you know what would be great is if we could just spray it. <laughs> well, and then and then if they're advocating natives, that this is their good guy flag. Oh, we we help restore natives everywhere. So so that's how that's their publicity angle. Yeah, they're, and they're then greenwashing. The more, and then they say, oh, well, we have to have all this native habitat, so now we have to have GMOs because otherwise how will we feed the world? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, I can see it's it. A, it's, it's a richer space than most people can see, and it's like, you know, a lot of these people, I believe, are good and decent people, and um, I think Toby makes a, a good point, which is, I hope will be very persuasive to these people in uh, having them choose to embrace natives plus the things that they eat, plus possibly a permaculture system, or perhaps a permaculture system that's very native, that's very heavy on the natives, as opposed to native only which is ex- excluding the food that they eat. I mean, you can get food from a native system, but um, uh, it's, it's generally not as productive and um, often not as palatable. And so people will grow this all-native thing. It'll, be, it'll just not provide as much food. Um, and although, you know, if somebody would get 90% of their diet off of their yard and it's natives only, I would, I would love to come and make a video of that. I think that would be... An amazing achievement. That would be cool. I I think it would be a very different diet than most people are used to. I think I think it's a huge challenge just for people to eat seasonally, <laughs> let alone natives. You know, so that's when you're talking about the different eco levels. You know, there's eating seasonally, which is you know pretty low eco level, but but eating natives only. Is way above and beyond that. It's it's a major diet change. Shall we start in the yes. chapter six? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> enough enough preludes, huh? Well, you know, it was an awesome video. We could go on for quite a long time. I I, I think it's one of my best videos to date, and I've got I think that's video number one hundred and thirty-one. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's definitely a fun one and meaty, you know, a great combination. Anyway, I loved that Toby started this chapter talking about the roles of a tree. It was just poetic, wasn't it? Did you like that part? I, I did like it a lot. I, I circled some pieces in here. Oh, by the way, I should mention, Toby gave me a copy of the second edition. Oh, he did. There you go. And, and, and he kind of he was kind of feeling like um, uh, we 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 needed to be doing everything from the second edition. Uh, that was important. Okay. Um, however, I, I I told him what for. <laughs> I, and, and so I I like the idea of focusing on the first edition. Now, when we get when we get to the stuff that's about the urban stuff, I'll have no choice but but I'll have to go to the second edition for that. But um, I like the idea of compare and contrast. I like the idea. I really like the idea of being able to say, 
Um, like, this is not something that's brand new. This was, I mean, here, Toby wrote about it 11 years ago. So um, I, I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick to the first edition with the idea that every time we do a podcast, there will be somebody on the other end talking about the second edition. Yeah, and and I think a lot of people will be getting these book this book from their library, and and it could the compare and contrast could um, get them to encourage their library to get the second edition. So anyway, maybe, yeah. maybe or or not. Not get the second edition, uh, although although Toby was like saying that he believed that people who have the first edition really should go out and get the second edition because there is a lot more stuff there, and we've already talked about how there's been a lot of different page counts and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So he talks about the many roles of a tree, um, and he just walks through it as a story almost about what a tree does in the environment um starting with keeping creeks flowing oh yeah the man who planted trees um that's uh that's important thing to watch although the video is really expensive yeah so um he said that the early miners in the West frequently reported creeks disappearing once they'd cut nearby forests for mine timbers. So. I don't remember reading that in my edition. See, the second edition is important. <laughs> there, There is that part. And then um, I underlined another part that says a full-grown tree can transpire 2,000 gallons of water on a hot, dry day. But this moisture doesn't just go away. It soon returns as rain. Up to half of the rainfall over forested land comes from the trees themselves. The rest arrives as evaporation from bodies of water. I just thought that was stunning. Cut the trees and the rain disappears. Yeah. See, I, I, I marked off the exact same paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 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 I, I, just, I just thought that was stunning. So, oh, I, yeah. it, what the, else the, do you say? That's just powerful. <laughs> true. True. Uh, this is, I mean, it's definitely, um, uh, this has got a lot of good information in, in it. Uh, the, the next paragraph I also marked off, sun striking the leaves ignites the engines of photosynthesis, and from those green factories, oxygen streams into the air. But more benefits exist to build sugars and the other carbon-based molecules that provide fuel and structure for the tree. The leaves remove carbon dioxide from the air. This is how trees help reduce the level of greenhouse gases. So, I mean, it kind of comes back to Alan Savory stuff about desertification is is really, uh, the the root of it is, you know, we're just chopping down all the trees. Well, and I think this is where you get resistance. I remember one community you and I visited together where the community did not want to cut down the Douglas fir trees because uh, they were very aware of this and how trees benefit the environment. And they didn't want to cut down the Douglas firs because they're natives. We need more of these. And yet the Douglas fir were in an area that was really inhibiting what they could grow for food. 
and, and was inhibiting how many fruit trees and other food-bearing trees they could have. Oh, I remember that community. Okay. Yes. <laughs> now you're up to right. date with me. Now, yeah. I was trying to think uh, of which community was this one because it seems like this is a common theme. This happens right. all the time. Right. And so I remember that, that they were currently embroiled in some sort of uh, community-wide debate about whether to keep these trees or to take them out and replace them with something else. Now, they were uh, in a row, and they were very large and, and really amazingly beautiful, no doubt. And, yeah. and a perfect example of underneath how, like, nothing else was growing underneath them. And that's just the way that they actually are. And um, uh, and they were, like, trying to figure out, okay, you know, what are we going to do with our land? And I was kind of, like, doing a walkabout, making suggestions. And, um, you know, a lot of my suggestions were outside of their comfort zone. Um, although I believe the woman that was on the tour with us was like, well, I would do that, but the rest of the group would be uncomfortable with that. Right. So um and then and then um later I gave a presentation there to about 50 people I think it was. Right? And 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 in fact Toby attended my presentation. Yes. So that's right. I taught Toby permaculture. You all should write that down. <laughs> a couple year a year or two back I was teaching him you know <laughs> so um uh but anyway um I don't know maybe maybe to help to change their minds it did seem like my presentation was really well received um but still I think this is a common problem people just don't know that, that it, it's a dilemma it is I mean uh, I, I also it was also a monoculture. I mean, they had a whole bunch of Douglas fir trees in a gob, and um, so that's that's not permaculture. That's monoculture. Right. And and so um, I I would have you know maybe they could keep one or two and and where the others and then take the rest of the wood and either mill it. Or use it for some sort of structure, or put it into hugo culture. Right, right, and then they they would have more space for a food forest right there, and they could intermix uh, more food bearing plants. Yeah. True, and the funny thing is, it's, it's on the south side of the property. Right, it was so it's um, everything. Yeah. In the wintertime, it's providing a lot of shade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. What it a was. dark and dismal winter. Again, every day it's dark and dismal. We just never see the sun. <laughs> right. Oh, well, I guess that's just the way it's going to have to be. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, you would think it would be time to change those out and, and maybe replant some as a nice uh, cold windbreak on the north side of the property or somewhere anyway but yeah okay so the other i i underlined another line that says a single tree may have 10 to 30 acres of leaf of leaf surface all able to draw dust and pollutants from the air you like that one too. I circled the exact same one. No, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just thought that was stunning as well. Wonderful. Yeah, so, that's an important one. Yeah. And then a little further down, uh, the next one I got is trees act as cloud seeders to bring rain. 
So by Cedars, I, I spelling counts S E E D E R S, um, as in putting seeds into the clouds. Uh, as I say it out loud, it's like it sounds like cedar. As in cedar like, tree. <laughs> yeah. And so, but but by uh, it puts seeds into the clouds to bring rain. Um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, all all important stuff, and and uh, you know, boy, I just want to reemphasize: everybody listening to this podcast will definitely enjoy watching the man who planted trees, and um, and focus on. Um, it's about. It's not. I think it's not even halfway through the video where uh, it's like the guy's gone out. He's he's just stick seeds in the ground, a hundred seeds a day, every day. That's that's his mission in life, and um, and about halfway through, and it's like this desert area. Everything's pretty much dead. Uh, not even Mullen <laughs> is, is putting up with it. Uh, and uh, uh, so then he goes and he does this, and uh, creeks come back, the creeks return, and and the whole area turns lush <laughs> just by going out and planting 100 tree seeds per day. So um, I, I thought that was rather excellent. Uh, the, um, I, the movie is surprisingly beautiful. It it looks like it would be dry and boring because it's it's these almost line drawing type, you know, animated line drawings that look rather plain. But when you watch the movie, it's it's beautiful artistically, uh, really enjoyable. Yeah, it, it is. I think it is a, a a piece of art, really. So, all right. Um, <clears throat> I was amazed. The, the facts in here are just surprising all the way around. And this part I didn't know. Uh, a couple paragraphs down from being cloud seeders, he describes how the water that falls off the leaves is is this rich soup, he calls it, laden with pollen, dust, bird and insect droppings, bacteria and fungi collected by the leaves, and many chemicals and nutrients secreted by the tree. This nutritious broth both nourishes the soil beneath the tree and inoculates the leaf litter and earth with soil decomposing organisms. In this way, the tree collects and prepares its own fertilizer solution. Um, I I know that there's a lot of plants where um, they are like particularly good at finding certain nutrients in the soil, and um, and so they'll bring it up from really really deep, right? And then they'll exude that nutrient out their leaves um, along with the transpiration. And it'll effectively, you know, oftentimes kind of uh, calcify, mineralize, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, when there's a rain, it kind of, the rain kind of carries it off of the leaves and uh, onto the ground. Although uh, the stomata of the of the leaves are on the underside of the leaves, but still, it, 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 there are ways. It does, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it does manage to find its way down there. But, uh, but yeah. 
Well, yes. And and I had not thought of it as exuding, being exuded from the leaves and washed down by the rain. I thought of you know, the dynamic accumulators with chop and drop and, oh, yeah, comfrey, grow that, you know, and when you chop and drop, you get more minerals for your fruit trees. Uh, I had not thought of it as actually being released in the rainwater. I think that kind of goes along the lines of uh, Jeff Lawton's uh, video about food forests, where it's kind of like, okay, if you just if you just leave it there, you build your food forest, and then you do nothing, it continues to pump out food forevermore. Right. And uh, on the other hand, and this is you know, so like for example, your comfrey suggestion is going to continue doing the comfrey thing, whether you're there or not. Whether you chop and drop or not, it will continue to, to do that service. Right. On the other hand, if you go into that same food forest and monkey with it a bit, you can oftentimes increase the pounds of food per acre um, by monkeying with it. Right. So you can you can optimize things a little bit. Um, yeah. So uh, it's your choice. It's a choice. It's not like an, an utter and complete thing. Uh, by reading that little bit, it reminded me of the video that I made about harvesting nettles and eating them raw. And the thing is, is that the whole video takes place at the base of a really massive cottonwood tree. Oh, right. And um, I'm kind of thinking, now to me, uh, you know, Helen and I argue about this a lot, but to me, nettles are an indicator of a soil that's high in nitrogen. Because um, nettles are nitrogen pigs, and, you know, and, and it's like, well, they're such nitrogen pigs, if there's not gobs of nitrogen there, they, they aren't going to cut it. They aren't going to make it. And they, they tend to grow in nature in bunches. They tend to dominate a space. And, um, and, where, and the space that they dominate tends to be like, and that's the line you draw around where there's lots of nitrogen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, uh, they tend to shade out pretty much everything else. So uh, uh, when uh, when I'm looking at this, I'm kind of thinking, well, this this tree. I mean, basically, it's like you know um, uh, the uh, uh, the spot is is like near the trunk of this tree, and I'm thinking, okay, a cottonwoods are going to take up a lot of nitrogen, and um, I mean they're they're a poop beast plant. They're gonna. They just eat it. They 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 have no problem at all. Jump right. And the other thing is, is why is there nitrogen here? Why is there nitrogen right at the base of this tree? This just doesn't make sense. Usually, it's next to something swampy, or something. You know, some place where it's like so high in nitrogen it stinks. You know, or or you know, some place where there's um, anyway a lot. You'll you'll find some reasoning, and so I'm I'm looking around, and then I noticed that like uh, a lot of the um, uh, leaves of the nettles have um, white blotches on them, and then and then it makes sense. Birds are hanging out in this tree. And this tree is just crazy tall. Like, it's more than 100 feet tall. And and so for all this space, way up into the sky, there's all these birds. And periodically, they uh, drop a load. 
on off of all these bird perches, and then it piles up and accumulates. So the cottonwood, being a poop beast, is taking it in, and all the nettles are taken in, and there's still plenty to spare. Right. Well, and and the way trees are usually formed, Toby describes in here, so that. Um, it says right here, soil close to the trunk can receive two to ten times as much rain as that in open ground because the tree just harvests the rain and keeps it, you know, down around its trunk. So, um, I don't know. And and he goes on to say more and more how it just accumulates moisture, accumulates nutrients, does uh, so much for an ecosystem with the tree and I think the nettles are a great example of that yeah right <clears throat> is that so, enough, enough about trees <laughs> well um, I, I think that you know every permaculture system is going to have a lot of trees and a lot of it has to do with a lot of what he's talking about in this chapter yes and, and the details are just wonderful I think I think for people new to permaculture principles I think uh all that time spent on the tree is really valuable to help people learn what what it's about. You know, as I was reading this chapter, I, I know that I have um, often said to people, like, what if they're going to buy just one book, what's the book to buy? And and what I've always said is that, you know, if, if you're working on an urban lot or a suburban lot and you're talking about, like, less than uh, a couple of acres, then it's this book, Gaia's right. Garden. Right. And then if it's larger, then you need to get, um, Mollison's book, uh, the designer's manual, the big black book. And but as I was reading this chapter, I was kind of thinking, you know. But still, even if you even if you got the the greater acreage, get Mollison's book first. But you really need to get this one too. There's just there's just a lot of information in here that um, is about larger scale stuff. That you know, really it really makes sense. Um, <clears throat> But before we leave the stuff about the trees, the section about the trees, I have mm-hmm. one more little gob that I've marked off. Mm-hmm. This tree's roots, and I think he's talking about an oak, this tree's roots have threaded towards those of nearby oak trees and then fused with them. A tree's roots, researchers have shown, can graft with those of its kind nearby, exchanging nutrients and even notifying each other of insect attack. Chemical signals released by an infested tree prompt its neighbor to secrete protective compounds that will repulse the soon-to-invade bugs. I had no idea they did that. I, I knew about trees starting from suckers, and they would all be really one tree. But I never heard of trees doing this. This is new to me. Right. That's that's pretty fascinating. And I I also underlined a little further in that paragraph, one of the largest organisms in the world is a forest of aspen trees that is, in fact, a single individual. Um, and I'd heard of that forest of aspen trees before. So um, I think it's amazing, and it um, there's just still so much that we don't know about how our ecosystems work together, and I think that's a beautiful example. 
So then in my uh, edition of the book, <clears throat> we start going into a, a lot of different plants. He, he's, he lists off a, a big group of plants that are, I, I suppose, his favorites. Um, and, and it's also to demonstrate how um, uh, these plants are very multifunctional. Right. So whereas a Douglas fir tree is, is like, a, you know, when you talk about its multifunctionality, the list is probably really short. Um, right. And, and right. You know, a lot of that has to do with its allelopathy. But um, uh, here, here comes this, this list of stuff. And... Um, one that I've uh, circled something is for bamboo, um, which he says. Uh, and when I was when I saw him this last weekend, you know, the, this last weekend when you did not see Toby, <laughs> I did. Um, then he uh, he said that the uh, um, comfrey is the queen of the permaculture plant world, and bamboo is the king. Mm. And he said that. Uh, um, uh, bamboo has more than, uh, I thought he said 200 uses, but here in the book, more than 1,580 human uses for bamboo, um, including paper, flooring, poles, food, baskets, bridges, fans, fences, hats, acupuncture needles, and xylophones. Um, and the part that I circled is Thomas Edison used bamboo for the filament of his first successful light bulb. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I keep using all these superlatives, but, you know. I, uh, um, yeah. See, now, I thought the king, I thought the king would be um, Black Locust, but apparently Black Locust is merely a prince uh, next to bamboo with the king. Uh, well, and... And, you know, there's still personal opinion in places and climate, too. Um, I think, though, bamboo can grow in almost any climate. To, you know, can it? I don't, I don't know enough about it. Um, he, I'm not sure. So when he starts out with his multipurpose plants, he's just um, the first table he has are uh, stacking bodily functions, 20 plants having medicinal properties, as well as leaves broad and soft enough to be used as toilet paper. <laughs> hey, amazing, huh? Does he have that in the first edition? Um, <clears throat> I guess not. I'm, not. I'm not seeing a chart that has that kind of stuff on it. Yeah, so so he, uh, he yet a, another reason I mean, why the second edition is superior. <laughs> so, so he just he called it um, a, a whimsical reason for stacking functions, but he's also very practical and pragmatic about it. You know, um, so that I know that's a question that's come up on Permies several times. Like, what should what should people plant next to? An outhouse. And um, uh, clearly, that would be awesome stuff to plant next to an outhouse. Um, the only thing I offered in the past were the poop beasts, things where they would shoot roots in to underneath the outhouse and pump that material out of there constantly. And I think I think this is an eco-level that will be shocking to you know, some suburbanites that are brand new to things, uh, 
uh, and yet, if you're really thinking about being off-grid and totally self-sufficient, you're not going to be buying toilet paper, you know? So, I just think it's, it's a different eco-level that's, that w- is good to make people aware of, even if they're not going to that level just yet. So, the next section that I've marked off <clears throat> is that, okay, so he went and he listed off a bunch of examples of different plants that he thinks are awesome. And, um, Let me just list a few real quick. Maximilian sunflower, a relative of Jerusalem artichoke. Gumi, maypop, comfrey, mashua, bamboo. Uh, yes, those are those are his favorites that he goes into details about how... Uh, what their multiple uses are. See now, your your version has a lot more than okay. mine. Okay. My, you, mine, those, uh, my list was mentioned by you, and there were a few that um, did not make the list in the first edition. Okay. Yeah, he has illustrations and goes into details about what the multiple uses are. Just as uh, he probably goes into the most detail about bamboo. I mean, I think that the big thing is is that he's got awesome tables that will cover a whole bunch of plants and all their ups, downs, and ins and outs, and you know, and, and, and all the different perks you know for these tables. But I think these for these plants, he's trying to show, you know, how how one plant can really have a lot of great stuff going on with it. Right. And and then he has a short list and he goes into a lot of detail for each of these. And these these ones I think are probably the ones that he thinks are the best well, for where he was in Oregon. True. True. That's it that's Because some of the plants he mentions are plants that won't do well here in Montana. Well, they won't they won't do well for everybody, but I mean like if you do your microclimates right, you should be able to get any of these uh-huh. to work somewhere. And then- so he, he I, I think it's excellent. He he sh- talks about the plants first, and then he talks about the different roles, the different functions you can stack together, right? So, and he calls it the roles of plants in the ecological theater. So he talks about mulch makers, nutrient accumulators, nitrogen fixers, soil fumigants and pest repellents insectary plants, fortress plants, spike roots, wildlife nurturers, shelter belters. Uh, and then he goes into the different types of plants. But he, he does have some huge tables uh, right in the middle of the chapter about dynamic nutrient accumulators and what with columns for what nutrients they accumulate and the nitrogen fixers. That's a big part of what um, I think. That's what I hear permaculturists talk about probably the most is nitrogen fixing plants. So the the list in the first edition is identical um, for the roles of plants in the ecological theater. Okay. Okay. I. I had circled the same thing, the, the same like list to read off of the different little sections, and I'm, and and uh, it I, it does seem like it's a really uh, robust thing, and of course there's a lot of other stuff to also talk about, but at the very beginning of the list, I I actually marked off the very first paragraph, which I thought was great, which is, we'll never know 
all the roles that plants play. And, and I think that this is the perfect sign of a scientist, right. is, is to start off by saying that we don't know everything there is to know in this space. And so we are projecting what we, you know, what our theory is and what we currently know and stuff like that, but, or uh, that, that kind of thing, as opposed to like, this is an absolute, this is the way things are, these are facts, this is the bottom line, and anybody tells you different is wrong. So this, this, tarts, this, is, this is what I believe to be true science, starting from a very um, humble scientific perspective. Um, so we'll never know all the roles that plants play. Right. And 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 if you think about it from that perspective, if you're looking at these tables about dynamic nutrient accumulate, accumulators and the nutrients they accumulate, that reminds me of how Michael Pollan dissects nutritionism and how we just don't know enough about nutrition. We can't say it's vitamin C, vitamin B. There's so many other cofactors in our food that we don't know about. And and I think I think it's really the same thing when you're talking about plants and putting in plants to make sure you have the right stuff to uh, grow grow whatever you're growing. Absolutely, I, I think that's a perfect example. Um, and I think from a horticultural perspective, um, I mean, I've, I've done this thing in the past where I've presented many times, and I always use carrots as an example. <clears throat> and the idea is, is that we don't really know what it takes to make an awesome carrot. You know, we, we, we've got some things we've figured out. There's some things that we have figured out how to measure um but but we don't really know um and uh and so now we're pumping out we're, we're planting a field in pure carrots and uh we're we're making these guesses as to what to put in for the carrots uh, and and grow a great big monocrop but i think that when we do polycultures that that na- that's how nature naturally does carrots and then nature can mix it all up and and then you know do the uh, the nutrient exchanges and stuff like that and then they're exchanging things that we're not even aware of that they're exchanging right so um uh thus making a more awesome carrot now granted in some spots you're going to have this lame pathetic lousy carrot and uh, it's going to be so pathetic and miserable that we hope that the bugs will come and eat it and um and get rid of it so we don't need to mess with it they take care of it so right. yay bugs, yay, you know, as opposed to like, you know, when they grow it in a big field, it's like, oh, no, we don't want bugs to come in here because they'll wipe out our crop. And in permaculture, we're saying, oh, no, please, bugs, come in, take out the lousy stuff and leave right. behind the awesome stuff. Right. I mean, what a, what a fantastic system. Right. I did, I did circle something under nitrogen fixtures that I want to read. Okay. Some people believe that nitrogen fixers must die to release their nutrients. Guess, guess who I'm directing this to. Uh, but both research and my own experience show that live nitrogen fixers are, the, are at least as growth-boosting as dead ones. Excellent. So take, take that, Helen Atow. <laughs> <laughs> well, Actually, it- Helen and I have exchanged a lot of email lately about the same topic, and, and she's got... 
her own research, which she believes shows that that is not true. And um, uh, and I want to get her on a podcast the next time she's in Montana, and um, and, and we'll 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 try this again. I I believe that um, Helen's experimental beds. Um, were you know while it, while she might be showing that in that bed it didn't work out that way. Um, I'm I'm going to argue that that bed sucks, and and that um, there are other beds where um, things may have been done well and it did work. Just because it doesn't work in one doesn't mean it doesn't prove that it will work on zero. But that's another. Right. That's a. That's a complicated thing there, isn't it? It is. All right, so you were saying you were going to say something? No. um, um, Just that throughout the book, in a couple different places, Toby talks about how roots without pruning just naturally die off and will release nutrients. And and so from that model, that makes sense to me that even with – nitrogen-fixing plants, even without any pruning or cutting, there's just natural attrition in their roots, well, which is what, what releases the nitrogen, from what I understand. Right. Earlier in the book, he mentioned something about um, pulsing and that, you know, there's there's like all these different kinds of pulsing. There's just day-to-day, um, hour-by-hour, like like every night it will pulse. And so, like, during the day, it'll do, um, like, breathe in, and during the night, it breathes out kind of a thing. Or maybe it's the opposite. But anyway, um, there's this variety of different kinds of pulsing. And through these pulsing, then the teeny tiny hairs on the roots will die off and, and then be regenerated and, and stuff like that. And as they come and go, then then each plant through that exudes organic matter as well as different kinds of nutrients. So um, I uh, basically he, he made what I believe to be a very solid case for how all plants share while they are alive. Right. And then, of course, there's the whole concept of the mycelium in the soil. And this is a part where I kind of wonder about Helen's soil. I wonder how much mycelium is there in her soil for the tests that she did. Because I do believe that if you are operating in a soil that's very low in mycelium, that um, and, and and she's quite the expert in this, so she would probably actually have measured it. Um, then then the amount of exchange between plants is going to be ten to twenty times less. Um, and because uh, mycelium just it's just like this uh, this little salesman that goes between all the plants and is like working the system, you know. So right. I I do think that mycelium is a, is a huge help in the soil. Yes, yes. So were there any any other pieces you wanted to talk about with the different uh, functions of the Yes. So um, under soil fumigants and pest repellents, I marked off the more highly bred and less odiferous, odor, odoriferous, the marigold. Yeah, so the more highly bred and the less odoriferous, the marigold, the less effective as a pest deterrent. Some hybrid marigolds, in fact, stunt the growth of nearby plants and attract pests. So the point being is that marigolds make an excellent example of um, something that that you know repels bad guys and attracts good guys. Um, but it, it's it's one of those things where it's like um, it depends on the marigold. Some marigolds suck. 
some marigolds are awesome. But, you know, marigolds are a great plant typically to, to um, uh, uh, plant into your guild, to plant into your mix of plants. But this is a point that's often overlooked. It's, it's, it's that it, it's certain marigolds do a much better job than others. And here, Toby is even making the point that some marigolds will actually do the opposite of what you seek to do. Right, right. Uh, yeah, um, I just I think it's interesting. I think the spike root section is helpful to people to learn how to build soil uh, using the, the the deep taprooted plants. True. I mean, each one of these has has its benefits, and it does seem like it's in order of the of the points that may be the most important. Right. Um, those are the things that like if you're if you're only going to learn two, go with the first two. If you're only going to learn four, go with the first four. Right. Uh, I when he's summarizing the different functions, he he basically summarizes permaculture methods in saying. Why make compost when you can have plants that build their own soil? Why weed when a living mulch will smother any unwanted invaders? It may take a little work to design and install a well-working ecological garden, and there may be some trial and error before all the pieces fit perfectly, but in the long run, understanding that in nature, nothing does only one thing, will result in lively, dynamic landscapes. So true. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, that's a paradigm shift. Um, and I'm just hoping that people new um, to this concept will will get it. It's very different. Then he goes on to talk about annuals and perennials. Um, well, before annuals and perennials, I've got yeah. one more thing. Okay. And that is that um, on page 110 of the first edition, he has a, uh, a drawing of a sun trap. And I just really think that this drawing is really, really good. And it really makes, uh, it, it, it demonstrates an excellent sun trap. It does a very good job. It's page, and, page 137 in the second edition. Okay. So um, this this image is something that everybody needs to see, all permaculturists need to see, in order to understand how this is supposed to work. Um, and so it's just, it's just really well done. Uh, a U-shaped sun trap open to the sunny south side but closed to winds by a semicircle of plants. The microclimate of the sun trap is uh, warm and protected and suitable for tender plants. Evergreens can be planted on the north side as a year-round windbreak. Um, just, just brilliant. This just really drives the point home of, of what is a sun trap. What can it, what you know? And I think this is an excellent example of a sun trap. Right, right. With keyhole beds and and graduated heights of the plants. Um, yeah, it's a nice drawing. Definitely showing edge. Lots of edge. So. Then annuals and perennials. Right, right. Um, I I underlined an area. He's talking about the standing biomass of perennials versus annuals. And in one part, he said, by removing only a bit of the biomass, 
he's talking about a perennial, the larger cycles of the garden ecosystem remain more intact than if I hacked down a head of cabbage. To me, harvesting annuals is like small-scale, clear-cut logging. I, I, I just thought that was interesting. So, you, so you're leaving the soil more intact. You're leaving um, the structures of the garden more intact. The more you can uh, grow perennial food than annual food. I, I, I marked off a paragraph that says planting annuals every year means disturbing the soil which is rough on the soil life and brings weed seeds to the surface where they germinate. Tilling to prepare a seed bed also flushes the soil, soil life with oxygen and the revved up little critters burn a lot of organic matter in response. This uses up nutrients that could otherwise be feeding plants. Yeah, and he goes on to say, plus the bare soil erodes in the rain and wind. Right, right. So, um, and this, and uh, in this section, the beginning is, is a sampling of common edible weeds, and so there's a, a table, um, and uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind, of, I'm kind of thinking, what I need to do is I need to take this table and um, probably make a good video for every one of the things in this table. <laughs> what is it, about 20, 25? Yeah, it's an excellent table. I agree. He has a sidebar uh, in the second edition, Weeds and Other Wild Food. Do you have that sidebar? Yep, I have that sidebar. I've, I've circled one paragraph or one fragment of a paragraph in that one. Ah, I circled the quote from Tom Ward in this one. I'm. Uh, I I got stuff um, before that. A surprising number of so-called weeds have edible greens, including dandelion, chicory, pigweed, lamb's quarters, chickweed, sheep sorrel, and the cleavers. I I just think that it's. Uh, I, I. I mean. I've done a lot of I, I've done a fair number of weed eating, and I gotta say I don't I'm not a big fan of greens, and I'm not really a salad guy. But um, I gotta say that when I have been around somebody who is a good cook and loves to use wild foods, they'll drag all this stuff in, and I gotta tell you, in the hands of somebody who knows what the hell they're doing, this stuff is the best. Right. So, so A, I don't like greens. I'm not a fan of greens at all. But you take these greens and you put them into the hands of somebody who can cook, and it's like fabulous food, fabulous food. Well, and, you know, as a mom, I come at food from a very nutritional and even medicinal point of view. Um, I've cured so many things for my own children just with altering their diets. So this is... This is huge to me. Is it's not just whether it tastes good or convenient or whether it's a weed or not a weed. It's it's what it does, and so that's why I like Tom Ward's quote. Um, Toby quotes Tom as saying, "Domesticated greens like lettuce can't compare with wild greens." Tom says, "When we bred out those tangy or slightly bitter flavors." We bred out the nutrition. There's probably more nutrition along the edges of most gardens in the weeds than in the crops. <laughs> so mothers should be telling their children not eat your greens, but eat your weeds. 
You know, here's, here's my quick theory about this problem, and it, and it is a good point, and it does go back to Pollan's work about... Um, uh, it's, 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 yeah. Well, and a lot of it is, is that which tastes good is loaded to the gills with the best nutrition. And... Um, uh, and then the other part of it is, is like uh, the the stuff that we buy. I mean, when I go to the good food store, which is Missoula's equivalent of uh, Whole Foods, when I go there and I and I buy blueberries, the blueberries are bland, and it's because they've been designed to uh, to last a long time and to transport well and stuff like that. And Pollen's point is, is that the reason why the bacteria don't eat those blueberries is because the bacteria has figured out. That's not food. That's like cardboard, you know. But the right. blueberries over here that don't last a day right. is because the bacteria looks at those and goes, oh, these are delicious food. Right. So, um, and, and then, of course, other organisms are, are designed by instinct to be able to detect what is good, nutritious food versus cardboard, whereas we function more upon, uh, we, we, we have very little of that. And, and we're dependent upon memory and, and that kind of a thing. Um, but here's, here's a big part of what I think. I think the, the thing that's going on in this garden or, or you know, with, with getting this food that's so useless and bland um, has to do with, with bad cooks more than anything else. <laughs> really, I, you know, it's like I think, I think that there are a lot of people that can go and take this food that if you eat it raw, it's damn nasty, and they can take that and make it fucking awesome. <laughs> But the thing is, is there's very few cooks that can do that. And so then what you end up doing is getting this food that's bland and lame and overly sweet and whatever else. And it's like, okay, now now almost any lousy cook can convert that into something that people could eat. Hell, corn on the cob. It tastes about the same when you eat it raw as when you eat it cooked. The only thing about when you when you cook it is that it heats it up enough that you can melt the butter when you put the butter on it. <laughs> no, if you overcook it, it's it's yucky. Well, then there's that yeah. too. Yeah. But I think I think that the key is is that um, is that it's true. I mean, there's a lot of these weeds that you can go out and they are edible. You can eat them raw, and they taste damn nasty when they're raw because they are so powerful and the bitter and whatever else. But but um, in the hands of a good cook, or even even somebody. I mean, when I say cook, um, I, I, somebody who's a, a, a food prep, uh, somebody who's really good at it. I mean, they could take it raw. And mix other foods that are raw, and then it is spectacular. Whereas if you try and work only with the things from the garden, it's not nearly as delicious. Right. I, well, the, there's a skill to it. I I think there's a change in um, what we're used to. I mean, this is all part of that eco-scale stuff again. People are used to certain tastes, certain textures, certain fast food, junk food, whatever. And as as people shift and they start liking more and more vegetables, more and more vegetables, they can shift to liking more and more strong-tasting vegetables. And and preparation is a huge part of it, and that's definitely a skill. Um, but I think there there's a big learning curve just in changing our palates and what we're used to. And well, you know, I'm not a big fan of, like, let's change our palates. Really? Yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of that. I mean, granted, it kind of happens as you get older. But I I am a big fan of, like, I want to taste new things and stuff like that. 
um, I, I'm okay with that, but I don't want to say, oh, because I mean, there are, you're, you're right, you can change your palate, and there are some people that think that stuff, you know, sawdust is awesome. In fact, it seems to me like a lot of people out there, they, they choose a, a, a food path where it's like um, they're, they're, they seem to be eating stuff that's not food to me. <laughs> you know, and, and on top of that, if we're gonna, if if we're going to, uh, if we're talking about changing the world, and we say, okay, part of how we change the world, make the better place, is everybody has to eat sawdust. It's kind of like, okay, I think you just lost. <laughs> we're all fucked. We're gonna die. It's over. But but on the other hand, if it's like, you know what, we're gonna change the world, and and we're gonna give you food that you like even better. Don't change your palate. We've changed the food, and the food is more delicious than ever. Okay, I think we're going to have a lot more sign-ups for this package. True. And, True. And, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to paint a picture of, like, of a path where you can have that package, where, where the food is even better and it's more nutritious, and you've taken the weeds or you've taken in your bitters and stuff like that, and you've worked it into, in, into part of the meal. Um, and and I think that the the way that's done is 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 through good cooks. And, the, and a lot of how we end up with cooking is is it's kind of like uh, I mean I just I just love to tell the story of of the guy that is the farmer that that farms this field right outside my window. And I visited with him several times, and I keep hearing people say things like we need to go and take a stick to these farmers that are because he's planted Roundup Ready alfalfa right out my window. And uh, as much as I'm against that. I have to support his choices because he is optimizing things within his world. Now, I had a conversation with him once where I said, um, you know, I'm telling him about permaculture, and he's curious about permaculture. And we visited about it once in a while. Um, and so he, he basically shared with me about the, the thing about the garden. He planted this huge, awesome garden, but all of his family wanted to eat at McDonald's and Pizza Hut and stuff like that. They did not want to eat the stuff that came out of the garden because this is like just boring. I mean, who you know, zucchini. Who the hell wants to eat that? So the zucchini sat out there and rotted out in the garden. And then he tried to bring a bunch of it into the garage, you know, like the squashes and stuff. But people didn't want to eat the squashes. People didn't want to eat the greens. He had this big, robust garden. And the idea was is nobody ended up preparing meals out of it. Nobody ended up even going out and eating the raspberries. Such it's a like waste, yeah. 90% of it just And it's like, but rather than saying, stop that, you know, or you're fucking everything up, instead to say, good point, good point. I mean, for him, growing a garden is stupid. No one's going to eat it. It'll just sit there and rot. What a waste. So this is where I come into the space of community. Because then if you've got 20 people living under one roof, I mean, you know, if, if it's like the food that hits the table three times a day is better than Pizza Hut, better than McDonald's and better than, you know, whatever other restaurant it is that they want to go to, then um, why go to those restaurants? But the thing is, is to have somebody who cooks. And then if you've got like a, a house with 20 people and you've got like a couple of people that are cooking, they exchange ideas and they build ideas. They get excited about cooking, especially when you go and you put out a meal and then there's like a whole bunch of people like, man, that was so good that I don't want to go eat at Pizza Hut, you know? So when we look at this, when we talk about the weeds are more nutritious and the weeds are better, I, you know, <laughs> I can see a lot of people kind of tuning that out because it's kind of like, yeah, they might be more nutritious, but I'm not putting that in my mouth. 
It's damn nasty. And I want, I just want to make sure that I add to that, that I, that A, you're right. It is damn nasty. Yes. And at the same time, in the hands of somebody who really knows what the hell they're doing, which, and there's a lot of people out there that do. I mean, I've been to a lot of places where there's somebody who can really cook and really make this stuff awesome. Mm-hmm. That it'll be it'll be better. It won't be damn nasty. It'll be fantastic in the hands of somebody who knows what they're doing. And it's like that's one of the in order to have a, a good garden, that's one of the ingredients. And and uh, and I think a lot of people, it's like, well, I'm not going to learn how to cook. I know that I myself, for some reason, I have a huge mental block or something going on within myself, and I'm going to freely admit that, even though I'm sure that a lot of people who love to cook will think I'm a complete moron. I just don't have an interest in learning more about cooking. I, I, I can cobble a few things together, and I do, and I, and I barely get by, but I do not have the passion behind learning how to cook that so many other people, it just seems to be a big part of their nature, that it's like it's, it, is, it is an easy walk for them. So, um, uh, and I think, I think that there's a good 80% of the population is in the same camp that I am, like, the idea of cooking. I, I remember one time I saw a television commercial, which these days I think I, I hardly ever see television commercials. I must have been in a hotel or something like that um, on traveling. Um, and uh, it was, I think it was a Jack in the Box commercial. And it had this guy, and he's holding an avocado, and he's like looking at it. And then he sets it on the table and he stares at it, and he's like turning it over, and 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 then it says, uh, uh, and, and then here comes the caption, and it says, um, if it weren't for us, some guys would starve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I think that's I think funny. there's a lot of truth in the garden. I can I can go out and I'll harvest stuff from the garden and, and I mean like there's lots of things that are well inside of my comfort zone for cooking and working with and stuff like that and um, and it's a limited set and then at the same time there's a lot of stuff that's outside of my ability to work with that in the hands of other people have been turned into fan, far superior food and and I and I just wanted to, so I've overemphasized this point but I do think it's it's a critically important point and and when we're designing permaculture systems I think we also need to design in community so that way we can harvest all those weeds right or even if it's if it's an individual that's not interested in community uh your garden design should Take into mind, you know, take into consideration what you will or won't use. Uh, it'd be lovely to look at these lists and go, "Oh yeah, that's great. It's this is so nutritious and wonderful." But obviously, if you're not going to use it or cook it, it it's probably not going to be part of your design. So it's it's yeah, good point. Um, so he goes on. Um, besides perennial and annuals, he talks about microclimates for gardens, and he goes into quite a bit of detail about how the air flows and works to create um, microclimates. Um, True. I, I and, and a little ways into that, I um, I marked off a chunk. 
Um, and and this is like the chunk that I put most of my focus into. And this is where like um, like Sepp Holzer, he his primary focus seems to be on wind direction, and and most the primary thing that that decides his designs appears to be wind direction. And and for me. I've I've been focused. I put most of my design focus into how cold air runs downhill, and so Toby says cold air drains downhill. So it's important not to block its escape routes. I know of some gardeners who planted a fine stand of bamboo just downslope of their garden, only to find that it stopped cold air drainage, turning their garden into a chilly frost pocket. They moved the bamboo, and the garden warmed considerably. Excuse me. Uh, yes, I remember being at a um, permaculture design presentation with you, and one of the students showed a just beautiful, lyrical, keyhole design um, of a garden. And and they... They had designed it uh, unknowingly so that each of the little keyholes would have collected the frost. They designed it almost perfectly so that the cold air would run down into the keyholes and just gather into each of these. It was it was like a leaf pattern. It was this flowing, beautiful, uh, organic design and um, and you pointed out you know if you just spun that design around it would shed off the cold instead of collect it and and the guy you know his face just fell a little bit at the moment but he knew you were right you know and um, uh, so that that was really instructive to me too Right. I, I've I've been to a lot of places where it's a, it's a very common design. It's it's as common as when I see people building greenhouses in the shade, <laughs> which is about ninety percent of the time. I think ninety percent of home greenhouses are designed in the shade, and it's it's kind of like you, you got to be kidding me. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I it's a, I see a lot of, uh, and you know, and I think I think that there's a lot to be said if you're in an area where it's like really really hot. Then oh yeah, maybe you want you want to collect the cold when the cold air is around. You know yeah, get it to bunch up. Let's hold on to it. Let's cool things down. But um, uh, since almost everything I do is is in um, colder regions, and people are fighting the frost to to, to get more um, growing season, then uh, yeah, seems like people's nature is and it's like something that's not really well known. Right. I. Right. Uh, I've mentioned it to a couple people, and they've just been surprised. Wow. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and most people know that they have cold areas of their yard, but they don't think about the cold settling there. They don't think about right. how it flows and runs. So is that enough on microclimates? A lot of people seem to think that cold goes up and that it's, it's, it's like lies you know, I try and talk about frost pockets and how you're going to capture the cold air that's trying to go downhill, and and their position is lies. It's not true. Lies, absolute lies. And uh, and their evidence is is that if you look uh, up, you can see that mountain tops will often still have snow in summer. Therefore, cold goes up. And and so I it's like. Um, 
Oh, it's a little bit more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> There's more going on than that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated, but heat typically rises, um, and and uh, the air is just thinner up there, and it, it, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated thing. Um, and uh, I just and when people tell me that it's lies, that's when I check out. Oh, let's see. I'm a certified master gardener. I'm a permaculture instructor. I've got this massive website and stuff like that. But uh, and you've got nothing. You uh, got no cred whatsoever. This is. Did you say this is your first garden ever? Okay, but uh, you're sure that you're the expert and I'm the dumb shit. That's great. See ya. <laughs> I'm on my way. Bye bye now. Right. So it's he could. Anyway, the microclimate section is is very cool. Um, and then he goes on to talk about nurses, scaffolds, and chaperones. And as much as I've heard of, you know, nitrogen-fixing nitrogen plants and polycultures and how, you know, in permaculture the plants work together, I... I still felt a lot of the pieces of a nurse plant, a scaffold plant, and a chaperone plant helped clarify some of that and the the good reasons for a polyculture. Um, And so I had underlined a bunch of sections in there. So though I'm needing to um, get off get off the podcast here pretty soon. So I don't. I think I'm going to skip over a bunch of the stuff. I well, you know what? How about this? How about how about this uh, alternate solution? We've already been going for more than an hour. How about um, if this chapter is is this big and we've still got a well, we're getting close to the end. I think we're almost done. We can wrap it up. Oh, okay. All right, wrap let's wrap up. it up. I've got I, I've got one little uh, note in this section. Okay. Ooh, in fact, I've only got one more little. Part. Um, so let me just read this real quick. In Roxanne's yard, Joel showed me a black walnut tree about eight years old that towered over a tired-looking Russian olive. The Russian olive, though it had grown ten feet tall, was now clearly struggling. They had planted it to shield the young walnut from the withering sun, as well as to pump nutritious nitrogen into the soil boost organic matter and soil life, and mulch the eroded ground with leaf litter. Now in deep shade and possibly suffering from years of the walnut's toxic juglone secretions, the Russian olive's work was done. Its walnut protege had thrived under the Russian olive's care, then overtopped it a little sadly, driven it into decline. So this is a, you know a lot of different messages in this, including a thing that a lot of people don't know about, about uh, walnuts exude juglone, which juglone is um, a toxin for about half of the plant species out there. It's like the most popular example for uh, allelopathy, allelopathy. Um, so anyway. Uh, yeah, I I underlined part of that as well. That was one that I that's a great example. Um and yeah, I just think, you know, the scaffolds, the nurse plants, there's great examples in there. And and he summarizes it by saying um the summarizes a whole chapter by saying when we understand the multiple roles that plants can play, we can link together their many functions in intelligent ways. 
then we can design gardens full of resilient, interconnected networks of life. Uh, this whole chapter it shows that it's a lot different than just choosing, oh, I want this shade tree because I like the color and size of it, you know? Oh, <laughs> it's, right, right. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very different. It's, it's a lot richer than that. So, yeah, a lot of landscaping. On, on the road out to Toby's house, uh, we were talking about the make nature my personal bitch thing. And and I think somebody sent me a message or something, and it's like instead of, because uh, I always say landscaping is evidence of make nature my bitch. And they said, oh, instead of saying landscaping, it should be called either land scraping or <laughs> land raping. <laughs> Although I think landscaping pretty much sums it up for me. Whenever I hear landscaping, I, I, I do have this big negative connotation in it. And then and you're right. We're going to do what you just said, the ornamental look. And there's this certain look from hundreds of years ago, which is the, the, the look to show that, oh, I'm so rich, I can do all this fancy on my land um, because I've got all of these servants. And then people try to set up their landscaping in such a way to still, to this day, make it look like I, I have all these servants to be able to do all this landscaping and, and pull, pluck every little plant that doesn't, you know, that, that, that fouls the look. But it, whereas nature's approach looks a little bit wilder. Anyway, there, there's a great table here of nurse plants, and it, it kind of talks about what kinds of nursing they do a yes. little bit. Um, it takes about, in my edition, it takes about half a page. It's yeah, it's about two thirds of a page, so it might be a little bit longer in the second edition. Okay, all right. Yeah, very good. I'm done. I that's my review. Yeah, we talked a lot about chapter six um, because again, there was meaty uh, information to discuss. All right. Anything else? That's it for now. Um, these podcasts are listed at permies.com on the Permaculture Forum and the thread that says, Welcome Toby Hemingway, or um, also at your uh, permaculture blog. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to spruce up the blog a little bit. Um, we'll see how, how it goes. There's a guy that's doing some artwork in that space. Um, nice. Daniel. Um, so uh, um, chapter seven is next. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I, I'm trying to think of like you know what's a I, you know so the previous podcast. I kind of covered a little bit about how it's so important that people listening to the podcasts come out to the forums and participate. I mean that's I think that's the primary reason why I do the podcast. That's a, the primary thing that I gain from the podcast is oh. hoping that people will come and participate in the forums. Speaking of participation, Dave Bennett was unable to be with us today um, reviewing this chapter due to technical difficulties. Right, um, right. So we should have mentioned that right at the outset. So hopefully he'll be back for Chapter 7. Yes. Yeah. All right. But but Dave and I did make a big podcast yesterday because... Um, you couldn't make it yesterday, so um, we made something about you know we skipped we, we left chapter six alone, and then we went and talked about uh, horticulture of the United States of Pocahontas instead. 
Right, right. So that's covered. You're now relieved of that burden. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky me. So. <laughs> no. All right. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about gardening, uh, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Mm-hmm.